Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. He is risen. Christes and Nesta. Christes and Necties. Yeah, I'm always like, wait, is that okay? Yeah, okay, we say that. Now. Okay, got it. Okay, cool. <laughs> How do we? What's the third? What's the third syllable? We just said Hallelujah in my church growing up, but okay, is this what we say now? Okay. How was it, Sarah? What was it, what was uh what was Easter like for you? Oh, Easter was so good. Which. Who knows with holidays, y'all, um, how they're going to go for me. And it was really, really nice. I will say I have totally avoided the thing that will most link Easter to my mother, which is Easter egg dying with the children. Mm-hmm. Um, if there are like fun, uh, r- really messy things to do around holidays that are not religious, then they will remind me of my mother. <laughs> So we have we have the white eggs, we have the dye. Um, I just haven't been able to cope with that yet. But Easter was beautiful. It was beautiful at Holy Spirit. It was beautiful with my students at Rice. It was just, um, yeah. Which again, I just never know what I'm walking into right now. So I was thankful for that. Yeah. Wow. Well, then I'm glad to hear it. This feels Praise like God. You, you, it, did you feel like every holiday you're sort of you get through something? Is that? Oh yeah. And you know, I'd spent a lot of time with a woman who lost both parents in the same way when she was 25. And she oh. told me that the anticipation is worse than the actual thing. Mm-hmm. And that was very helpful because yeah. it actually makes the anticipation not as bad because you're like, this won't be as bad as I think it's going to be. And so far that, you know, that's been true. So yeah. Well, I saw some pictures of some glitter bombs going off in the Condon household, and oh, yeah. young, 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 young Neil looked like he was having a lot of fun lord, lording it over the smaller children. Yeah, I have a, a friend who is an ordained lady in the neighborhood, and um, you know, we just have our own show on Bravo at this point, and um, she she totally rented like a like day of called the rental company on Monday after Easter, and. Uh, and rented a giant bouncy house that was an ice cream truck and had them put it in her backyard. Amazing. And it was so nice. And we we uh, we all ate together and, you know, I brought food. There was a ham somebody had given us when my parents died that we just like handed to her because we had so much food and she'd frozen it. Mm-hmm. And so our terrible joke was that that was the costliest part of the meal because we totally ate the ham at Easter. <laughs> <laughs> so deep dark symbolism um but also delicious so yeah it was nice what, what about did you R- guys do well I, rj was like uh covered in the news RJ he was, was like on, on local the easter celebrity <laughs> this what, year. what happened there rj i'm getting i'm getting it forwards from pre- people you were like, like the tom Selleck of easter <laughs> oh my gosh totally i grew a mustache and everything <laughs> if only i could grow a mustache Although all the all the people who saw him on Friends were like, Tom Selleck has a mustache. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? What are you talking about? Um, we had a great Easter man. We had the, the we added two extra tents, uh, one for more people, one for the orchestra that we had. So we had like a an orchestra because we couldn't sing, you know. So orchestra, uh, handbell sure. choir, tons of people showed up, tons of new people, amazing Easter egg hunt. Yeah, and then like that local newspaper showed up and we were front page Monday. And then like the local um, uh, news station showed up and we were on the 6 p.m. news right after the Pope. It was like RJ. Pope Francis and then, and then, and then it was like, Trinity. here's Protestant guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Although I was wearing my chasuble, my holy poncho, oh. so being rather Catholic. Did you have for, on a weird uh, hat? I do not do the hats. Okay. You know? Not yet. Not yet. No, no hats. hats were worn. 
But it was just, it was a wonderful day. And my youngest brother, Daniel, and his wife and new baby were in town visiting, which was so much fun. So just nice to have. We're at the point like where friends and family come to visit. It's so great. And then they leave and like, we just get very sad. We're like, please come back. We're lonely. We miss you. But Mm. that was, it was just, it was really, really fun. Of course, as I was sharing with you earlier, the one thing is the... uh, our internet, man. Ugh. So our live stream was like, okay, but not great. It was a little glitchy. So that mm. was frustrating. But except for that, it was just uh, um, really exceeded all my expectations. Like it was as good as it could. The weather is beautiful. And it was just, it was a, a true celebration. It was wonderful. Good. Yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah. We had a, this sort of miraculous uh, event where... <laughs> We had a um, service outdoors at a farm of a, um, of one of our clergy, actually, Mary Lou of Thomas. They have a just a big old Virginia farm, and 650 people showed up, and I mean, unbelievable. It was, it was uh, it was an Easter miracle. It was it was Pent really nice. I mean, it was. A lot, I think I, we kind of scratching our heads. I think we thought a half that many people would come because it's 30 minutes outside yeah, of I Charlottesville. Yeah, I mean, were you guys like? Where are they parking? Like, I mean, like, I'm like, is it suddenly it's like the first Woodstock, you know? And I was like, <laughs> there were cars everywhere. There were cars yeah. everywhere. I mean, it was, it's just kind of that palpable excitement that you, yeah. Um, and I had driven back from Washington early in the morning and was a little bit out of it, to be honest with you, because I didn't have much of a role. I was just there to sort of say some prayers. And uh, people just kept on coming and coming and coming and coming. And you just, you felt, you're either in the field of like dreams. It was like the field of dreams. I was yeah. going to say, yeah, exactly. It, was, it felt like field of dreams a little bit. And yeah. for us, you know, who haven't really gotten to do like anything for mm-hmm. a long time, it, it felt like a real godsend. To be honest oh, with you. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your Palm Sunday kind of got rained out or something, right? Didn't it? Did you have yeah, big Palm kind, Sunday plans? Not kind of. And... It got completely rained out. It was like a big oh, thunderstorm. So thank God. Praise yeah. God. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was nice. So I'll, I'll take that with. Uh, it's. It's. You know, shot in the arm, as they say, but not the vaccination kind, mm. uh, which is the first thing we're going to talk about today. Uh, I thought we haven't really attempted a humor piece for a little bit, but the New Yorker put this out, and I thought it was. Um, very funny. Eli Grober wrote, things fully vaccinated people are still not allowed to do. Here at the CDC, we have announced a new set of public health recommendations for people who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. However, there are a number of things that vaccinated people are still not allowed to do. Please familiarize yourself with this list. Number one, uh, reply all. Once you are fully vaccinated, you are still not allowed to reply all to an email that was clearly not meant to solicit such a reply. Similarly, getting the vaccine does not give you the green light to CC 200 people on an email. Um, next, uh, you are not allowed to stay unmuted during group Zooms. Just because you're fully vaccinated doesn't mean that everyone wants to hear all the sniffing and typing and fidgeting you do while in a Zoom meeting. Mute yourself whether you've got the shot or not. Uh, Next, you're not allowed to not order fries, then eat your friend's fries off their plates. Uh, No kind of vaccine will ever make it okay to do this. Even if you're vaccinated and eating outdoors, masked and distanced, just order your own damn fries. And then finally, uh, you're still not allowed to suddenly stop walking up a flight of stairs to look at your phone. Like developing a vaccine, going upstairs is an activity that demands your full attention. You may be immune to the novel coronavirus, but you're certainly not immune to a person behind you walking straight into your butt. Get to the top of the stairs, then look at your phone, and then be grateful for modern medicine. That's great. Now, Sarah, I mean, you, you're partly vaccinated. Are you fully vaccinated? No, I'll be fully vaccinated. By the time it comes out, I'll be fully va- on Thursday. Yeah. Do you yeah. feel, do you, are you feeling entitled to just do, do whatever you please? Or is that, you've talked, spoken in past podcasts that uh, some of your um, compunction about uh, caring about all the, the little things has gone away since uh, December. What? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> It's funny. I had to go to the doctor today because my throat, I'm convinced, is like, I'm just convinced I have cancer. Let's be real. And um, it's like a little swollen, but no. I mean, there's anyway, you don't need my, all my symptoms. But I was like, I have cancer. And um, I went to the doctor today, and I'd never seen this doctor before. And it was this lovely Texas lady who spoke Spanglish. And she was like... Um, She's like, you know, like you don't really have any symptoms for anything serious. And I think that's just baby anxiety. 
And then I just like burst into tears <laughs> and she like couldn't find Kleenexes. It was amazing. Um, she was so tender and sweet, but, um, yeah, I'm really scared of dying. Like not because I'm scared of death, but because like I, I my children cannot have more death in their lives. Right. So I'm actually like more probably vigilant right now than I was six months ago about like, like all doing all the things so it's weird like because i know people and maybe well, you guys know some Sarah, people those too, will we'll save you from death just so you know all those things you're doing will a hundred percent prevent you from dying Dave, you're one of these people that like you got covid late i, I definitely did you know yes. i like thought i did last week like I went, a dummy. I went to, yeah i got a covid <laughs> test i was like if i get covid holy week that will just be i'm like who can I, i'm gonna fly dave's all down to preach oh my be, gosh yeah. so yeah i mean i feel like i i there's like a twofold thing where it's like a like i don't want everyone to think i'm a moron sorry dave and then b like i don't like i don't i don't want to like cause my children more grief so yeah sure. i'm definitely like wearing the mask and doing all the things and i feel no freedom like i'm like i guess we're just gonna wear masks forever like i'm just like i feel no freedom to like mm. do otherwise i'm i'm hoping that goes away though like and you get a little more careless. I mean, I miss restaurants so much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, like indoor restaurant, nice glass of wine. My husband, like, oh my gosh. Like I just, I, you know, and I know the restaurants miss my money. So it's like I, that, that there are things that like I really um, hope to do. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the, the, Anne Helen Peterson, you know, who wrote that book, Can't Even. She put out mm-hmm. a um, newsletter this week just saying that like, I'm, I'm not, I'm ready, but I'm not ready. Yeah. And uh, I think it captures what a lot of people feel and like, you cannot wait for the party or the wedding or the, you know, going to restaurants and then then you get right up to it and you're like, but I'll go in a few more weeks. You know, there's, there's as in all things, the, uh, you know, other things are driving the train than facts, (laughs) you know, facts are only are very much uh, secondary in this situation. The fear of missing out is not quite as strong as the fear. Still. It's just yeah. the fear of dying. It's yeah. just the fear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> RJ, yeah. what about you? Do you? What do you think? This list was funny. Is there anything that should well, be the one on that, it? The one that skewered me, which you didn't read, which is still apparently not okay, is playing devil's advocate. Because I just feel that in myself, especially if I'm talking to someone who's just like really, really on some bandwagon. I want to be like, but on the other hand, you know, and I just have to like stop myself and just like, mm. just nod. Like it's nice. never yeah. okay to mm-hmm. play devil's advocate. You're RJ, just I never thought about like that is like a very strong tendency you have oh totally no it's not yeah i mean like when i worked with you i would come in and be like can you believe this you're like well i can because like i think you have such a deep sense of people's fallenness that you're like that it's funny like that well that- i i the the good i think the good thing is it does flow a little bit from compassion like yeah. knowing that like oh, as strongly sure. as i feel about something or as right as i think i might be there's always another point of view or i'm probably wrong right but then part of it is just also arrogance let's be yeah. honest oh, okay. and like okay. and like the, okay. the and like, I like the that cocktail you know, rj like the, the the need to be you know the need to be right or have like an alternate opinion or sort of yes. you know stake my claim to well, I mean, uh, to I'm, just I'm, in, 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 some insight what would Jamie say if we asked her about your devil's advocacy? Is she is she thrilled with it? I mean, is she like, we, has she made peace with it? We kind of do it. We kind of do it to each other. Like we both sometimes are like, actually, I didn't want your opinion. I just wanted you to nod and listen and agree with me, yes. and then maybe like you know, scratch my head and tell me you love me. That's all I really wanted. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we probably both. She, she, I'm sure she would agree. I, sure I wasn't asking agree. you so you could fix this. <laughs> yeah, we're both pretty contrarian, though. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. actually, at the end of the day, Jamie. I'm I'm going to give you, know. you some pushback on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel I, like you're looking for feedback. But have you considered <laughs> this? You know, I, 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 considered, yeah. I tell you what you can do with your pushback. The um, <laughs> Yeah, not to be a total, you know what, but, you know. You What's funny, I was talking that. to someone about, to someone the other day who was like, just got so convinced that to love other people is to tell them the truth all the time. And you just want to say, oh. I was like, please, no. please don't love me that way. I kinda, please I, or, do not. Because I, I do not interpret it that way. No. Maybe other and people as do. If and if you know the truth, bro, as if you have any idea what's actually true. Well, yes. Nobody knows what's true. Come yes. On. And well, what is imputation, if not the greatest lie we've ever been given? 
Yes, there you go. You know what I mean? I'll take it. Imputation is a lie. (laughs) A legal fiction. (laughs) Speaking of non of actual legal um, non-fictions, one of us signed a contract to buy a house. Am I allowed to say this, Sarah? Is this not? So, So we actually had to pull back. Um, you and I have not talked about this what? yet. <gasps> I know, I know, I know. Uh, I had um, such a good segue. Did. Disappointed. We did. I know it's a good segue, but we did. We had to pull back. We're looking at a different house. It'll be fine. But yes, we yes. Did. But why don't you t- give us the context for this next article? Is that Sarah has been? You know, most lots of people know this, but some people don't. But when you're in full time ministry, you often live in houses that are owned by churches called in in our denomination they're called rectories. Right. Um, there are parsonages, that sort of things, and um, mansions. As my Baptist grandmother called them. Mances, yeah. Yes. Someone said that to me. You don't live in a manse. What's a manse? Yeah. Um, so the you, you want to sort of glebe. <laughs> it's common to want to build some equity and have a place of your own. Yeah. And it sounds yeah. like you, you guys are pursuing that option wholeheartedly. I hope I'm we not speaking are. out of turn. But no, can, no, no. We definitely are. And I mean, part of it for us is also like when I lost my parents, I lost Mississippi. And mm-hmm. it's a place for all its many problems. Um, I dearly love, and so yeah, we've imputation. Some, sorry, imputation. <laughs> and um, I mean, you know, I've been very open. I I really did learn more about the sin and redemption of Jesus Christ in the classrooms of the Southern Studies Department at Ole Miss than I ever did at seminary. And so yeah, we're we're looking at houses um, in Oxford, which has um, been exciting, but also because we've literally never owned anything before. Um, because we've always lived in church housing. It's um that's exciting too. So and I have family there. Just feels like a God thing. So Yeah. Well, yeah. um I, I know that there was a um there was a there's a Saturday Night Live thing recently, you know, about people who like Oh my in, gosh, in I middle think age. of this all the time right now. Yes. Instead of looking at porn, we look at Zillow. They look at Zillow. <laughs> it's yes. people instead of totally. like I know something really exciting we can do Truly, tonight. Yeah. We yeah. Look yeah. at Zillow or I watch all these apps. Watch House Hunters. And this next it's, article is actually by Nora Kaplan Bricker in The Point. And it's called it's titled House Hunters. And it's she sort of weaves in all this um uh, commentary about a murder mystery writer named Tana French that I haven't read, but it sounds fascinating. But most of it's also about home ownership and that uh, particular journey for people. She writes, for people like me who came of age around 2008, the promise of the property ladder lay in pieces. So the story went because we understood that we would never reach even the lowest rung or would fall into bottomless debt if we did. I try not to trust too much of what I read in the style section of the New York Times, but I will admit that stories about millennials as eternal renters formed my understanding of my own future, in which, for a long time, I never expected to own anything of more value than a laptop or bicycle. In the past year, the pandemic has rewritten the trend around my generation. Homeownerships have risen to their highest level since 2008, driven mostly by buyers in their 30s and early 40s. Maybe global instability inspired people to exert control over the personal sphere, imparting a sense of urgency strong enough to overcome the story that we've been told about ourselves. Or maybe low mortgage rates simply underscored what was already becoming evident. Even if most millennials won't earn as much as their parents, that's consistent with many millennials amassing more than enough uh, wealth to acquire property. Property. At the simplest level, it's easy to see why people confined to their homes would start dreaming of a bigger, a bigger and better ones. I, too, would like to escape my apartment where the kitchen table has become my husband's desk in this work-from-home era, and there's nowhere to be alone in the sense of out of earshot. Since the advent of the pandemic, I've spent more evenings on Zillow than I care to count, flipping through serene images of empty rooms with parquet floors and tiled fireplaces or sunny kitchen nooks overlooking backyards. All white. <laughs> that's the only way you have a kitchen now. Uh, yes, with lots of islands. Maybe maybe yeah. two islands. Lots uh, of islands. An archipelago. She, yes. she writes, I routinely work my way through every listing in my own Boston neighborhood where I can't afford anything, and in several small New England cities where I could possibly afford something. The pleasures of Zillow are the pleasures of miniatures. Each overpriced condo becomes a virtual dollhouse, a world whose charm is that it can be comprehended in a single glance or arranged to my liking with the barest nudge of a fingertip. At the same time, I'm embarrassed by this acquisitional make-believe, which suggests that the bourgeois imagination formed by my comfortable childhood remains stronger than the more capacious one I've tried to cultivate since. Homeownership 
is the ultimate inoculation against life contingencies, or so we are led to believe. The only people who are capable of either unfettered action or unfettered thought are those who have the mental security of permanent safety, argues one character in a ton of French mystery. Once you own your home free and clear, what is there left for anyone, landlords, employers, banks, to threaten you with? I wanted us to have that freedom. Of course, no house can be made fast against disaster. Even the most peaceful homes hold the memories of small misfortunes and everyday cruelties. In this sense, every house is haunted. Our habitations also give lodging to the ghosts of things that didn't happen. If every life is full of branching possibilities, then every house contains countless unlived destinies, a million better outcomes, and a million that are worse. So a house is not only a place where one lives, but a physical embodiment of the life that one lives in it. To lose a home is to lose the self that took shape inside its frame. The dream houses of Zillow appeal to our imaginations as places where private life could perhaps take root beyond the reach of the present's cascading emergencies. To escape at least occasionally into personal happiness is a matter of bare human necessity. But I've noticed that hunting for houses I can't buy on the internet leaves me less prepared to inhabit reality. No, mm. oh, a lot there, but this. Uh, I, I mean, it's all really good. Yeah, it's a fascinating reflection. I find, you know, um, everywhere I go, maybe it's the stage of life, maybe it's the pandemic, maybe it's just, you know, the, the the cliche of just white people remodeling houses. That is my town. In in all white. <laughs> in all white, yeah. Um, it, but people are singularly fixated on real estate, and they sort of will do anything for it. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, do, do you follow this impulse at all? Cause I, I feel it a little bit for sure. I mean, I, I, you know, I've had to think a lot about this. Um, it's funny. I had therapy last week and I was kind of like, eh, I don't, I mean like, what am I going to talk about? Which is hilarious given my life circumstances right now. But, um, like really? that's how, that's how big my ego is. I was like, I got nothing. Um, and we were talking about, you know, us looking at houses and I just was like, <laughs> burst into tears, which is clearly a theme of my life. Um, I was like, I just want home back. Hmm. You know, like mm. that's part of this is the, just the sheer comfort of what home felt like and wanting, wanting my parents back too. Right. Um, I mean, what she said is so brutal. Um, like to lose your childhood home is to lose yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel that like intimately and maybe that's just because I've lost it in such a brutal way. I, I you know, I don't know. I, I know the last time I was in it, I wrapped both arms around, you know, uh, walls and wept. I mean, mm. I, I don't know that most people have that experience when they leave their childhood home, you know? Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is all the things she said and I fully understand this, this sense and I don't blame anyone for it of, of safety. Um, when you feel like you own your home. Um, yeah. Or it's definitely like a myth that if you own your home, you can have complete security. Uh, that's a very, very powerful uh, myth. But it's a really <clears throat> alluring myth. Oh, I mean, totally. I say to Josh all the time, I'm like, look, if you die, we lose this house, this is rectory. <laughs> and he's always like, why am I the one that dies first? Like this is the like ongoing. <laughs> so, yeah. well, we've we've talked about this before, Sarah, a little bit about the difference in your experience versus Dave and mine. Where I think I hope I'm not speaking too much for you, Dave, but I don't. I didn't really have a child at home, right? We moved around so much that there is no place that I have that kind of emotionality around. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I really relate to this article, and and part of it is, um, you know, we also live in a rectory, which is lovely, um, but we still own our house in Houston, and we miss it. Like we yeah. loved that, we loved that house, and and our kids kind of, uh, you know, we had a baby in that house, and our kids grew up in that house, and and we also we did a lot to that house. Like I I built the deck in the backyard, and and we made a lot of choices about flooring and about tiles, and it was kind of when we moved, when we moved in. We kind of never thought we'd live in a house that nice ever, you mm-hmm. know. So the idea that it was ours, um, my my wife, it was funny. She sort of she leaned up against the kitchen island because it has an island, and she slapped her hands on it. She's like, "Well, honey, 
I think we're ready to have kids now. You know, and of course the joke was is that we had like a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old already. You know, so um, so I feel that I was, you know, as she was talking about interest rates and the current situation, that what I was feeling more was how how does it, how do I say this right? Every opportunity you have, like around something like a house or like, I don't know, the stock market or whatever, every opportunity ends up feeling like a law. It feels like a burden, you know, because here, and part of that is where we are right now too, because everyone's moving to South Florida. And like our hope is to at some point sell our place in Houston and buy something here. But now we're like, is that ever going to happen? Did we Mm -hmm. miss the boat? Mm -hmm. Should we have bought as soon as we got here? Have housing Mm -hmm. prices got so out of control? And did we miss this opportunity? And did we mismanage our money? And did we, you know, it's like things getting better. You feel like you've you've fallen behind or you've missed an opportunity. So I'm I'm trying not to feel like the heaviness of that. Just to be like, look, it's been a pandemic. We just we just moved in. Like we, oil was zero dollars a barrel barrel this time last year. It made no sense to sell our house. Um, yeah, but just feeling the weight of of trying to make you know always the best possible, most optimized oh, decisions yes. you possibly can. And I'm sure you're going through the same thing, right? Is this it's the right decision? Awful. Should we be doing this? Yes. it's terrible, and it feels like such a burden. Hmm. Rather, you know, regret and and sort of um, rather it, than just yes. enjoying your life, you know, and being yeah. thankful for what you have, which is actually what the article is about, right? Yeah, like um, inhabiting your actual life rather than your hoped for life or regretting a life that you you're not living or something just because our life is actually, you know, we're in a pandemic, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> huh. Look, my life is pretty good. And if I can say that, you guys can yeah. deal with <laughs> incredible okay. life. That's so oh, funny. Gosh. I never yeah. feel like I have a great life, but even though I, from the outside looking in. I, That's the I, depression, I, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> what? I keep thinking. Of- I do. You know what I do? I do when people come to visit. Like when my brother and his wife were here for 10 days, I was like, mm-hmm. I love our life. When the Adams were here for spring break, I was like, I love our life. Mm. And then they go away and you get back to sort of the regular routine. And lo- and, and I love my family, but I know my wife feels the same way. Like we, um, yeah, it's really, it's actually nice to have a full house. Right. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, I, 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 the house thing is just so, such the locus of what occupies people's minds, I think, especially at this age. And I think it does have something to do with your trying to provide security for your for children yeah. Yeah. and roots and things like that. Because you're right. The RJ, nesting instinct is a thing. I'm so, I'm such a sentimental person, but I'm not sentimental about, about, about places. It's just, it's, yeah. it's a strange, yeah. like missing yeah. chip, even though I say that. And when she, she writes about houses being haunted or you seeing ghosts oh. of people Jesus. and Sarah, I mean, that would strike you in a different, I mean, a very a different very way. specific way. Um, but it's, it's funny. Like I was just in, um, uh, so, you know, my wife's family lives in Washington, DC. And so I'm always back there and I lived a different life at one point in Washington. Like I was, I went to college there and, um, it's, it's gotten to the point where like there's these overlapping layers of ghosts mm-hmm. that like I almost get used to. It's like, Oh yeah, that's the place where that happened. And that's the place where that happened. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they collide and sometimes you just learn to tune them out. And maybe that's, you never get rid of those. Um, the, the amount of times, or I at least used to be at dinner parties and the conversation would turn to real estate. And for me, it's such a, um, I got to the point where I was like, is this just something people talk about when they don't want to talk about other things? Yeah. Or is it that we're really that focused on real estate as a, as our identity and our aspirations? Um, or, or is it that she lives in a tiny little apartment and just is desperate to get out and have a little more space? Well, <laughs> you know, her, there's, there's, that's, there's that's a, definitely the case. I mean, you right yeah, now. There's the pandemic aspect to it as well, yeah. Right now, everyone's thinking about how they can make their space but better. Like, or yeah. are we all like, Dealing with an existential crisis of wondering where home is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like yeah. that's more than just like me and my stuff. Like, right. So, yeah. Morrissey has a song called "Home Is a Question Mark." I always think that that's mm-hmm. a, um, it's a it's a powerful song. Well, and I say this stuff all the time on the podcast, but for so long it wasn't. For so long, home was the same place you stayed your whole life, you know? And, like, that is – it is a very recent occurrence for most of the populations of humanity to – to stay, to, to leave. I mm-hmm. mean, like that's, you know, so yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel normal or natural to us. Yeah. I think it doesn't to me at all. I mean, like 
For me, it is absolutely at the hand of God that my aunt bought a house in Oxford, Mississippi two weeks before my parents died. It is the hand of God that my two boy cousins, who were the ones who climbed into the wreckage of an RV in a junkyard to find my mother's purse, Mm -hmm. that those two men live in Oxford, Mississippi full time. Like that is like that. Those are people who are intrinsically connected to my heart and always will be. And so, you know, for me, there is this like real sense of peace and home when I think about having a place there. That's beautiful. I think, I mean, that's why in the reasons when you were talking about shopping for a house, it felt like just seemed like the God given avenue for the moment. It, yeah. For us, it totally is. I mean, just because one didn't work out doesn't mean, I mean, girl, you know, I'd like, I was like, okay, on to the next. Like I, you know, like we gonna get a house there, but, um, it's, it, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure I've actually ever had such a sense of God's presence in like doing this, hmm. you know, and doing something like this. Like, it's just like, yes, you need, people in your life who knew and loved and missed your parents in the way that you do and you need them there regularly. So, yeah. Marcia, the other thing I'd say that I really resonate with what you said about, I don't think I've, it's, it's definitely an area where I feel the weight of the law in a very powerful sense in that there is a very accepted right way to do this and wrong way to do this. And you can really get this, yeah. you can really do, do, do uh, yes. go down the wrong path. And I Dave, did you? Did you refinance, Dave? Have you refinanced? <laughs> we did recently refinance. <laughs> and I tell you, we are yeah. winning. Will you be Hashtag an idiot not winning. to, Dave? Okay, good. What? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I did a great job. Amazing. Well, so great. Victory. Was, let me tell you, it, it was like... You won! <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing the entire time. I was just telling, doing what people had told me to do. It'll turn I like, out I guess that this it was is a what I do huge now. mistake. I just want to say, <laughs> it was a massive mistake. Well, how do you, when, when you see a mortgage and like what you owe on something like that, it, how do you feel any relief about that? I, I find in myself that that's like a prison wall. It's nuts. You know, it's like, it is. Here's something that you can make sure you'll never do anything interesting ever again. Um, <laughs> I, I guess I'm in a slightly morose mood today. No, but, but the, the burden of the, getting the, all this stuff right. Right, all these major yeah, life it right. decisions. Like, are you are you yeah. maxing out your IRA? Have you refinanced? You know, did you buy in the right neighborhood? You know, it's just like, ugh. I I want to say this like with great trepidation, but I at least in my household, um, and whether or not I'm a bad feminist or a good feminist, I'm a saved <laughs> feminist by the blood of Jesus. So okay, um. I feel like a lot of that burden often falls on men mm. of like the, you know, the right interest rates. Like you're all playing like math games. You know what I mean? <laughs> that you're like not good at and don't have an education for, but like a lot of the women in your life are like, I don't know. You know I mean? <laughs> Certainly we have friends who are the reverse of that, but like it is like pretty, I mean, I think some of that burden falls more on men in a lot of relationships and you're like, you don't know what the hell you're doing. No, we don't. Like, <laughs> just, have, just have mercy. Have mercy. That could be, Sarah. I'm not going to argue like with that assessment. <laughs> it does often feel that way. Remember, I've never gotten more feedback on a joke I made in a sermon than when I once said, "I, you know, that one of the great confounding mysteries of midlife was that I didn't realize that what you're supposed to do is be everyone's flipping houses all oh the time. Like it was where I was living. It's like, yeah. oh, well, we're going to live here for a little while and then do this renovation so we can get into that house and this house. And I was like, I never got this memo. I don't know what, where I was the day that they handed out the guidebook right. to sort of like living in this insane, you know, having your own kingdom by the sea by the age of 45. And that is, again, that's very contextual. That's where I live. It probably says a lot about sort of, you know, East Coast. How but much it resonated. You Privilege. But I, I just, <laughs> it, it's hard not to resent how much emotional well, oh space it occupies or it's at least awful. space and you're period also, you're I, living in a house that's perpetually staged and never actually lived in you know which like that just can't oh, be good yes. for like yes. marriage and parenting and maybe that's a yeah. great metaphor for modern life well can i say one thing and i know i'm like always biblical guy always biblical guy but Please. um but sarah as you were talking about yeah this modern this modern phenomenon of like leaving home I did think about, I thought about the Bible, and I thought about, um, you know, I was talking about Thomas Cahill, this author that I love, and uh, who wrote this series of books, The Hinges of History, but one of them is The gift, uh, the Gifts of the Jews, and he talks about Abraham being called to leave his home, 
And that, that was like a, this, this new, th- how history was circular up to that point and repeating. But when God calls Abraham, suddenly history becomes uh, directional. And I do think there's actually, as I think about the Bible, mm. there's something deeply Christian, biblical about leaving home. You know, Jesus leaves home to come to earth. You know, Paul leaves home to to plant churches. Abraham leaves home to go to a land that God has not yet shown him. You know, Moses has to leave home to go to Midian for 40 years. Um, there is something about about that, that we shouldn't be, shouldn't feel like there's something wrong with us, or we've done something wrong if we feel called or just have to leave home for some reason, because uh, God seems always to force right. people to leave home. That's a good word. I hope I don't get called to do any of the things that were just listed. But <laughs> well, how many times have you left home, Sarah? <laughs> a lot. I yeah, mean. exactly. Many, many yeah. times. Many um, times. Well, we're going to talk it's like, like about a uh, something a little related, and that was um, the recalibration of ambition or ambition as a driver of anxiety. That uh, you know, this can take the house hunting form, but I think it's a more general phenomenon. And there's a fascinating article that appeared in L, L magazine by Lottie Jeps. She's an English writer and she is, she loses a high profile job in marketing right at the beginning of the pandemic. And she, she writes about this long piece about how she's come to appreciate, um, an existence on the other side of performancism. Really, and they even use that word. They're seeking a less performative life, a less staged existence, uh, RJ. And she's finding more and more peers who feel similarly, sort of people who are in praise of mediocrity. So she couches what she's learned in terms of the urging she'd absorbed during childhood, that the only life worth living is an extraordinary one. In her view, the pandemic has schooled many of us in that, in the pitfalls of that kind of ambition. Here's what she writes. She says, it turned out that the unexceptional life I'd been running away from wasn't so tragic after all. I felt happier and freer than I had in a long time after losing that job. Yes, it was an ongoing battle with my inner monologue. I wasn't failing. I wasn't betraying feminism. But to my surprise, I didn't burn with envy when I saw peers getting jobs I would normally have gone for. And with that came a rush of relief. By pressing pause on my relentless ambition, I realized that I didn't need to win anymore. I just wanted to enjoy the game. And then she talks to a 35-year-old ex-magazine editor who laughs at herself saying, you know, I find myself having to constantly fight the urge to create another narrative around this less exciting existence. To announce on social media, this is the new me. Just to show people that I've made the, quote, right decision. But actually, when you give up trying to prove to the world how great what you do is, you stop boxing yourself into your own life choices. You have more freedom to give things a go and discover what you actually enjoy. Her take on it reminds me of something the journalist turned philosopher Oliver Berkman writes, our friend Oliver. The conscious or subconscious belief that what you do is incredibly consequential has the effect of making the stakes too high to enjoy life. You end up feeling like you're perpetually holding the word world on your shoulders so that if you don't make it through your to-do list or fulfill your various obligations or, quote, realize your potential, something truly calamitous will happen. Well, says, uh, says Lottie, I've ditched that burden and now the stakes are lower. Like my friend Sophie, I take pleasure from the everyday rhythms of a life that doesn't seek to impress. But we are well into our 30s. That's a long time to have spent reaching for the stars before relaxing into more earthly expectations. But besides, if this year has taught us anything, it's that success can be fleeting. Our expectation of what extraordinary looks like are altering. Never before has the work of nurses, carers, and cleaners been held in such stark relief to the, quote, influencers escaping to party in Dubai. Maybe the illusion of self-importance is finally being exposed. Of course, it's not that we actually want to be Beyonce or Elon Musk, but we feel we have to be the Beyonce of our own lives, the peak version of ourselves. Uh, She closes by saying that she believes uh, that we may be on the vanguard of a backlash to our hyper-performative, endlessly on, 110% culture, and many of us are starting to aspire to something shudderingly average instead. You know know what they call a place where they make really average stuff? The Satisfactory. Oh. There he comes. Where's that in the Bible, RJ? moment and a Bible moment. My son was reading bad jokes. At, I think at Easter lunch, actually, we were talking about puns. I was like, that one works. So so you, d- you did not find this uh, to be a hopeful word, Sarah, d- giving up on an extraordinary life in honor? 
or well, I mean, I think overly that's optimistic. I don't. Yeah, I think I don't think that that's gonna happen. I don't. Oh, the, oh, the, her I mean, prediction at the sounds end. Sounds like yeah. she and her friend have a cool club, and maybe she started going to AA, <laughs> and that's cool. But like, I don't. You know what I mean? Like, that will always be the friend. Yep. I mean that there is that like that like. She felt the need to write about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? She did. For a major I mean, publication, right? Broadcast her newfound mediocrity. Like, okay, Elle magazine. Um, yeah. No, it's like, I'm a simple farmer now. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I just, I don't know that people. She's launching her influencer brand right? next week. And this She's is like, why bland you is should called. buy my bland. Um, I just don't know that people are going to get on board with that. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, on the one hand, I will say as I was hearing it, I promise I want to always talk about my dead parents, but it hasn't even been six months. Um, I did hear it and think, well, I've already had an extraordinary thing happen in my life that has made me really value the normal and want no more extraordinary things to happen in my life mm. be they good or bad i just want a normal life yeah um my ambition for anything is pretty much gone um honestly it just is like um i feel like i said this last week people have called me to be like hey will you come speak at your church if you're listening to this no i will not come speak at your church <laughs> i can't even believe you asked me um so, <laughs> in fact never call me again yeah. <laughs> um so you know i do like I, I i do feel that but i think to, i don't know it just seems very unlikely that everyone is that that they're it's it's like the glory story can't be undone do you know what i mean like when we talk about like we talk about the gospel story versus the glory story and, and the glory story being this idea of like, you know, I can do all like it's sort of like the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and the I is the most important part. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think this is you can't take something like I'm going to live a humbler life that's simpler and make it a glory story because then it's not a humbler life that's simpler. Then it's not the it's not the thing on the fringe. You mean yeah? And this huh. choice against the self will always be on the fringe, and most people will be there not of their own choosing. Huh. I mean, yeah. I don't want to be there. I wish I was still ambitious AF. You know, like I wish. Do you? Yes. It was a kid. Are you kidding me? When I had two alive parents, who every time I talked to them on the phone, they told me I was like the most incredible person in the world. And when was I going to run for bishop? Yes, that was fun. You know what I mean? <laughs> when are you going to run for bishop, Sarah? <laughs> you, had good, you had good parents. But like, but th th this is hard, you know? Um, is it beautiful in some ways that my previous life is not? Yes. Oh my gosh. Like, yes. Hmm. Um, but it, I don't know. I mean, it came at a great cost. So. Yeah, you're not there by choice. No, no. I said to my husband the other day, I don't like this trade when we were talking about buying a house. I said, I don't like, and I was crying. I don't like this trade. And he said, oh, sweetheart, this is not a trade. We did not get to choose this. Mm. So. Yeah. The article reminded me of something that uh, the late Bishop Ed Salmon said, which was that, uh, that basically to... To love is to be anxious, right? That love is anxiety producing. And he, he said this to uh, our friend of ours, Alex Large, you know, you don't get uh, anxious about your relationship with the cashier at the grocery store because you don't have a relationship with them. But if you love someone or something, then you're always going to be anxious about it. That's what it produces. So, um, and I, I, I say that in the context of like my own ambition, mm -hmm. Right, like here I am at this church and I want to, I do want to kind of build something and grow something. And is it, is it out of my own selfish conceit, my ego? I mean, I'm sure there's, obviously there's a little bit of that in there, but I also sort, I do kind of feel like it's because I, I love, I love this place and yeah. I love these people and I love this message. And I think, um, you know, I think, Paul was, uh, was he, yeah, Paul was ambitious. I don't he know. He definitely got I, anxious about things. Ambitious is the wrong word. I think it's word. the wrong it's word, not the right RJ, because you have deep, deep love. I mean, I've seen you with people you well, that, love. But that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. People. Like, yeah. I actually don't feel like I'm that ambitious. Yeah. Like, I don't need, I don't need to have the biggest church in the world or right. to be a bishop or whatever, but I want what I'm doing 
to go well. And part of that is because I want people to think well of me and I want to feel good about myself. But part of that is also I just, I do kind as, as hard and stressful as it is sometimes, I do love what I do. And I know you guys do too. You yeah. love what you do. Yeah. And we, and you love Jesus yeah. and you love this message and you want more people to hear it. And you, you love to see it when it connects with someone it's and the amazing. freedom and peace that it brings. Um, but that also does produce anxiety, that anxiety isn't always just the product of vain ambition. Sometimes it's a product of, of love. And like Jesus got pretty damn anxious in the Garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but he was willing to sort of experience that out of love for us and for God. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I hear her. Um, I, I feel like Christianity is usually an argument against this sort of personal ambition that we, that yes. the, at least the yes, college students is. that I work with um, are uh, completely oppressed by. Like it's a, it's yeah. not mm. even a question uh, in their yeah. minds that like mm. they need to be ambitious. And, you know, um, lots of the, I mean, that, that can be, I mean, that's, you could say that's like the product of privilege or something, but you can, how many times have I seen kids who feel like they have no um, option but to go to college and go to graduate school, even though in their heart of hearts, they don't really want, they're not really cut out for it and they should be doing something else. But it's not, it's not even, there's no uh, cultural permission whatsoever to, uh, to quote unquote settle. There's the, I always think of that onion article is like, uh, hopeless loser from high school still living in hometown with, yes. with ha- happily married with three children and you know yes. and 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 working for dad's company and like how yeah. dare they not move to new all york all his friends are like oh what's wrong with him? <laughs> i always yeah, think like, about that i mean <laughs> they said from their studio in yeah. la <laughs> i heard a woman interviewed uh actually today about you know because i work with college students i'm always sort of absorbing the stuff about young people and how amazing it is now adulthood is they should all think of adulthood as amazing because there's no longer the set out trajectory where you live in your parents house you live at college you meet someone you get married you have children you work now you can do anything (laughs) so hooray so so great And, you know, when I think about a piece like this, I think like, oh, really good news. You can delay having people in your life who love you no matter what, guys. Mm. Isn't it great? (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, seriously, wait until you're 35 to fall in love with someone who will love you for who you are. And then wait till you're 38 to have children who will love you for who you are. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, this is not good news. Like, this is like, like you'll have all this time to be in a job that like doesn't care if you're alive or dead and like will work you to death. Like good news, everyone, you know, it's Mm. just, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's just harder and harder. It's why I don't actually find this piece to be like realistic because I think, you know, Dave, you see this all the time. Like it's, it's just, they're so pushed towards what will make them more ambitious. Mm -hmm. Well, I I, I also just, I'm just going to say it. I I see it in my own life as being my, my, where does my ambition for the gospel end and my ambition for my own name begin? It's, it's very muddy. And a lot of it is, uh, deeply, um, narcissistic and sinful and, and a driver of enormous, um, uh, unhappiness. Like if, if what, what, what a Mm. gift it would be. And, and the moments where I I do feel grateful and do feel happy and do feel excited to be doing what, what, what the privilege that we've got been given to, to, to share this news. Like it's always the times when some sort of personal ambition has kind of died and, um, and, uh, or it's been deconstructed and you're able to accept what, what's actually there, you know, and to, to move forward in gratitude rather than you know there was another article this week by arthur brooks in the atlantic and he was talking about how humility is really um correlated with uh, contentment and what he said is Mm -hmm. that uh the more um you sort of are are hung up on certainties and unable to relinquish um narratives about how things should be the less um the less loving you are of other people and the less charitable you are and the less connected you are and the less happy you are and the less enlightened you are and something about ambition is usually you are married to some narrative of who you need to be in order to be loved and that is life is like a systematic assault on that idea 
Um, and the gospel yes. is a systematic assault on that idea. And it, it's painful. It sucks. Like, who, who wants to experience this? And yet, come to find out, what Easter tells us is that there is life on the other side of the, 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 the crucifixions we, we experience in little ways. And maybe that's um, melodramatic, but I, I find it to be true. Like, a- ambition, I'm not sure how I'm going to want to communicate that to my kids, you know? What is it important to them to be super high achieving? I don't, I don't know if that's that the, the extent that I absorb that with sort of mother's milk, I think I, uh, is probably not a good thing. So I don't know. Yeah. What, what, why are you laughing at me, Sarah? I'm just like so bad at parenting. That's what I was like. <laughs> I was like, we know, we know. Neil, we had know. To, Neil had to memorize his speech for extra credit for because it's fourth grade is like Texas history year, Texas, <laughs> and um and it was some Travis speech and about the Alamo and all this stuff and God is on our side and he like read it all to me and I should have been like. Oh, you should definitely memorize that and you'll get the extra credit. Like I should have said something really encouraging. And I was like, just so you know, our family was on the Mexican side. And also God doesn't like anybody at war. And he's just in the back seat, like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a wonderful so anyway, no world. Tips from me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. RJ, any final uh, thoughts on that? No. Well, it, this past Sunday, and you know, I want to go into it because you just were featured in these news outlets, and I want to hear. Oh my gosh! It's totally. uh, a lot of preachers. Um, maybe people don't know this. Like as exciting as it is that lots of folks come on Easter, it can be a very difficult day to say anything. I mean, we have this great thing to say. We have the resurrection of the dead. We have, uh, you know, the empty tomb. And yet so many of us find it easier to speak about Good Friday or or you you end up doing like a greeting card almost like on Easter and, and, and gloss over the difficulties and the anxieties people are really wrestling with, probably as a result of their ambitions, but maybe not. Maybe simply the suffering they've endured and the... Um, uh, how do you preach on Easter, RJ? I want to hear from you what you said um, to folks and how do you feel it connected. And Sarah, I want to hear from you um, because it's a, I, I find it really interesting. To preach a good Easter sermon is about as hard as you can possibly. It's easier to preach Christmas, I think. But what do you think, RJ? Well, I, hope, I, don't, I don't know if I preached a good Easter sermon. Hopefully I did. I started what off did by t- talking about Disney. She thought it was good. Okay, good. Well, it was good. good I don't think time. she think I knocked it out of the park, but I think she thought it was good. And she usually tells me when she's like, that was weak. And she did not say that. <laughs> good. Uh, started by talking about Disney movies, oh, of God. course. Nice. Tangled? Um, no, but I, I, I did. I, I said, I talked about how many movies um, prominently feature a resurrection. Oh, You yeah. know, and actually so many Disney movies from... Uh, Frozen to Tangled to Pinocchio to Sleeping Beauty. They're all stories of people coming back from the dead. And then I talked about that being true in superhero movies and fantasy movies. And and I just talked about how we we really long for that to be true, for this not to be all there is, this for this not to be the end. There's something hardwired in us to, to hope that, to want mm-hmm. that. And then I said that I think Jesus is the the best and maybe only evidence we have that it might actually be true. And I talked about that a little bit. And and then I talked about um, just what an incredibly hard year this has been. You know, how, how none, no one has been um, uh, exempted from feelings of, of um, loss and loneliness, pain, anxiety, depression. You know, all of us have had brushes with death. Um, but uh, the, the final quote I used was from uh, The Lord of the Rings, actually, when, uh, when Gandalf comes back from the dead and Sam Gamgee says... Um, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. He said, but then I thought I was dead too. He said, is everything sad going to come untrue? And Gandalf says, a great shadow has passed. Um, and then the passage says, and then he laughed and it was like water in a parched land. And it, it occurred to Sam that he had not heard the sound of laughter of unbridled merriment, um, since before he could remember. Mm. Um, and that's that's what the resurrection means. It means that everything sad is going to come untrue, um, and that that all the pain we've experienced, all the, all the division of the past year, the divisiveness, the social and civil unrest, it's not forever. And and if Jesus was God and came back from the dead, then He is with us. You know, He's with us today, and He 
was with us through all of that. He was with our loved ones who died alone in the hospital. They weren't alone. He was with, there with them. Um, and so I talked about the resurrection as, as pointing to uh, that there is more to this life than what we see, as we hope that there is, as we sort of long for mm-hmm. there to be, um, and that Jesus is, has, is with us and will be with us through all the, the, the pains and sufferings of, of life. Um, well, that's beautiful. So yeah, that's what I but about. what 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 well, well, what you. Disney what Disney uh, what third tier Disney movie did you uh, extol uh, as as great? <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't talk too much about. It. I did mention Tangled, of course, which I did. I did say I felt was vastly but he underappreciated. Tangled in every and also sermon. Iron Giant, also Iron yes, Giant, beautiful. Uh, yeah, yeah. So lots of uh, you know. Um, What's the other? I actually have not seen any of the. Uh, what are the vampire? Stupid vampire. Hotel movies? Transylvania. Uh, no, <laughs> no, not <laughs> which animated. one? The other one. The, the Mormon. The Mormon vampire. Oh, movies. Um, uh, Twilight. No. Twilight. Okay. I've not seen any of that. I Although I hear the books are good. I'm, we're too old for that. Good. There's a resurrection. Well, Sarah, there. did you you preach to your students at least? I did. Tell us, tell us what I you did. said. Well, first I have to say how thankful I am for um, Aaron Zimmerman and for Jacob Smith. Um, their podcast that is put out by us. That the name of it I cannot remember right now. Same old song. Same old song. I wanted to say Well of Sound, Dave. Oh, yes. Um, well, listen to that one, too. But the, uh, Listen to that one, plug too. Plug away. But um, it won't help you with your preaching, but it might. But Same Old Song is so... It was honestly, guys, so helpful for me before this great tragedy in my life. But it has been... It is hard to write sermons when you're sad. And it has been incredibly... I mean, it's just been the only way I've been able to preach anything. Um, is listening to them. So, um, I, I started with a story that I love that, um, I think I told when I, RJ and I were on staff together when I preached there. Um, but in Jackson, there's this big fancy church called St. James and, um, it was not where I grew up going to church cause it was too high cotton for us, but they had a preacher like 30 years ago who got in the pulpit on Easter Sunday. So like ladies are in hats, you know, gentlemen are in seersucker. They're expecting a 25 minute sermon. Rector gets into the pulpit, takes a sip of water, clears his throat, leans in the mic and says, it's all true. And then sits down. And I love that. Um, so I told them that story and was like, obviously I'm not going to do that. Um, cause it would be weird, um, at a college service, but, but, um, but then went on and, you know, a lot of the stuff I got from same old songs. So I really, I just don't know how I would do preaching without them. Um, mm. but they talked about like how people's pain is real. And so I was able to say to my students, like, it's all true. And also just because we know how beloved we are by Jesus doesn't mean that we live lives without problems. Like those problems are true too. Mm. Um, mental illness is true. Um, my sadness is true. Like these are true things. Um, and, you know, one thing I love that the, the guy said was that resurrection changes nothing in so many ways because like we still have issues you know um we still have problems but on the other hand it changes everything Mm -hmm. because jesus um knows those problems because jesus bears those problems and and died for those problems and loves us through Mm -hmm. them and so anyway it was a great sermon that jacob smith and aaron zimmerman and i wrote together I was glad to put that. That's beautiful. That's wonderful, Sarah. I mean, I, I, I think I keep thinking of that Beekner quote that people have passed around on social media every Easter, but like the Easter means that the, the bad thing is never the last thing. Yeah. And um, Oh, I know, which means like such different things to me now. You know, like I just feel statements like that in such a a deeper, more beautiful, more painful way. Um I was I saw that passed around and I was so thankful for it. Yeah. The uh, I was going to read a little bit of what one of my favorite Easter sermons is something that Paul Walker preached uh, here in Charlottesville, and uh, it was it was right before I got here actually. And uh, he write he says that only God can can write Act Five, can write Act Five. Mm. Um, he said we all know there are plenty of snakes slithering through Acts one to four of our lives. 
if your life is like mine, there are plenty of unresolved plot lines, unfortunate alliances, broken promises, premeditated betrayals, mixed motives, and loves lost that defy any hope of a happy ending. It may even seem to you that the author of your life is intent on writing a tragedy resolved only by death at the final curtain. Thanks be to God, on Easter we are given an Act 5, the act only God can write. We are not left on our own to recognize the presence of God. As we see, Mary sees Jesus himself and doesn't recognize him. So what happens? Jesus recognizes Mary. What this tells us is that Jesus Christ calls your name even in the midst of your incomplete belief, your mistaken identities, and your failure to recognize the presence of God. At the center stage of Act 5 is not you. We see Jesus Christ standing beside an empty tomb, but not as a ghost or a phantom or a spirit. We see him with teeth, eyes, taste, everything. Death itself has been sent into oblivion. It is left lying powerless beside the discarded linen clothes. The tomb is all, is all that is sans body because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive and talks directly to Mary, consoles her, cheers her, instructs her, calls her by name. Today, this Easter day, this is Paul speaking, Jesus Christ is here. He is calling you by name, John, Catherine, Elizabeth, Paul. He knows your name and therefore knows your life. He is the author of your name and the author of your life. In him, all the unresolved plot lines and mistaken identities, the mischances, and even the willful wrongdoing are resolved. It is not a resolution that we can contrive or even conceive, but know this. It is better than you could ask for or imagine, because only God can write Act 5. Easter Day, like our lives, begins in the dark, but ends in the light. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but when we are raised as he has been raised, all will be clear. All of it will make sense. There will be no more weeping, no more sick society, no more mistaking, no more misunderstanding. There will be no more need for clues, no more guesses at God's presence. His presence will be all in all. There will be only Jesus Christ at the very center, shining brighter than a thousand suns. And the best part of this is, Act 5 will never, ever, ever end. So good. That's good. Well, um... He walk! <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's funny, there, there was a couple that came after, you know, I, I, we had three services, and after the sunrise service, this couple came after me, and it's like, they were like, so that's great about heaven and all. But what about the people who are going to be there that we don't like? They really said that to you? I, they really <laughs> you must, did. You must have really, really heard what did. I was saying. And I said, I, and I said, well, I said, I said, that's so funny. I said, here's the, what the Bible says about heaven. What's so great is that we're going to be different, mm. and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be the jealous, sinful, angry. You know, we'll be the same people, but we'll we'll be able to engage fully in relationships with each other, with ourselves, with God in a way that we couldn't before. And they'd never heard that. And so I mentioned that in my eight and my ten o'clock sermon, and people love that. They're like, I'll, "I'll like the in heaven, I'll like the people I don't like now." Yeah. I'm like, "Yeah," and the people that don't like you are gonna like you too. And they'd never they'd never heard that before. Yeah, you know that heaven was gonna be this totally redeemed existence, which is kind of you know they, that in Act Five it'll all be it'll all be resolved. Mm. Every tear will be wiped away. Well, you you said at one time, right? RJ, that like so much of the sin we experience and the dysfunction and the um. I don't know, the, the relational breakdown is so much the result of us acting out our own fears and uh, things that oh we're gosh. afraid we're going to yes. lose or going to be taken away from us or we'll never receive. And what would you be like if you really, if, if without that fear, like what would it, what it be like? If you weren't, I mean, scared, if you weren't anymore. scared anymore. And that's what Mary Carr says. What would you write if you weren't afraid? That's what I have to keep telling myself. What would I write if I wasn't afraid of how, it, you know, mm-hmm. this person, that person. Yes. And you know, the truth is, this is why I think um, Christian community or whatever have you, like the, the when people feel that loved, they become more likable, you know, and they become mm-hmm. a little easier to take. And like annoying, annoying people yeah. become a little less annoying, not because you find them yeah. less annoying, but because with when some of the fears are silenced just a little bit, um, you find you actually like people that you didn't think you could like. And maybe, maybe yeah. you entertain the fact that they might find you that likable too. I mean, it's, they it's, um, like you. you've yeah. said that to me before about, uh, about heaven and about sort of what will melt away in the twinkling of an eye. And I think if it's a lot of it's the stuff, the ego, um, 
fear structures that uh, make us so on hard to love, um, make us so intent on, yeah. on self-justification so that make us, you know, duplicitous and all these things. I don't know. What, what, Sarah, what do you think about all that? Uh, I mean, I think that stuff's really hard for me to talk about right now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Just is. So I'm glad for RJ's words. I'm glad for your words. You know, I'm, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing because you, um, you know, it's so easy for me when I'm with people who have lost people, um, as a pastor to, to talk about those people being heaven, to have those conversations with them. It's very difficult when it's people who were just here. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, that's hard, but I'm thankful for you guys and for your faith and for your words. And, you know, I feel like God has given me over and over again, people who just fill that gap of, of, um, the struggle with belief that I have. And I definitely count you too among that, that group of people. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I think them even if you're in a, different spot too like the um the reason i read a easter sermon is because i need to hear it you know from someone else you know it's it's, it's yes it's very yeah. difficult to, yeah. to um summon summon yeah. this within yourself if you're uh, it's if it's you if it's your family it's just hard it's just i which is a great lesson actually for me pastorally it's it's just harder to imagine so you know Cause sometimes like it wouldn't i mean preaching the resurrection of someone who's really in grief and I guess we're all in some sort of grief, but if you're who's active, acute grief, it can be the, the the least pastoral thing in the world. Um, that's one of the, yeah. Yeah. And I had, I mean, that's why I didn't know how Easter was going to go for me, you know, but like Josh just spoke about like God's very singular love for us. And, um, and I needed that. So, you know, it's, it, but you know, I mean, I, Anytime a grieving person shows up at church, it's such an act of faith because, you know, we don't know how we will respond and we don't know what we will hear. Mm. So mm. I'm married to the priest, so I knew he was going to screw it up. But <laughs> that's a very cha- that's kidding. a charitable thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Imputation yet again. Uh, you know, I mean, he's also just to name it, like he's in deep grief too. So you know, I kind of know I mm. can trust his sermons right mm. for that reason because we're because we're both in that place so anyway the emotional tenor is going to be um unavoidably uh powerful it's it, it yeah. can't be false or i just like i can't imagine how it could be even no matter what he's saying well rj mr easter 2021 crowned crowned <laughs> king of easter the king of ridiculous <laughs> RJ. King is jesus rj's the prince rj has okay. trampled down uh-huh. media yeah. uh, you know, ig- yeah. indifference to uh, well i enjoyed it for a couple of days but today i'm back to being myself <laughs> yeah. unfortunately uh, well why don't you yeah. give us today there's emails to answer and laundry to fold yes yeah. yes there is forever and ever amen um rucker what's next then what are you preaching on this sunday i'm not preaching Good. rob lofberg is preaching nice. well what? Yeah, he sounds like a great so, preacher. I don't know who he is, but it sounds good. He's a, he's, yeah, he's a, a common friend of David mine. So looking forward to that. Fantastic. Anyway. Well, all right. I think we all can right. stop it there. We'll probably uh, we'll pick up in a couple weeks. But thank you both, and happy Easter mm-hmm. to everyone who's listening. And happy, happy Easter, Easter guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Oh